In the scripture passages we read Sunday and this evening, we sped through the six hours of agony, the agonies of our Lord at the cross. And as we just saw at around 3 p.m., Christ breathed his last, bowed his head, gave up his spirit. The darkness cleared, the veil of the temple was torn in two, there was an earthquake, things were raised from the dead. The centurion professed his faith. The crowds beat their breasts and returned home. And the followers of Jesus stood frozen. What now, they must have thought. Meanwhile, the enemies were not just sitting there, the enemies of Jesus. They were proactive. The sun was about to set. The preparation day or the eve of Sabbaths coming to a rapid close. They didn't want the bodies on the cross remaining suspended on such an important holiday. In fact, the law itself required their removal. It says in Deuteronomy 21-23, concerning those who were hung to death, His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. I like Charles Spurgeon's comment on this, quote, Their consciences were not wounded by the murder of Jesus, but they were greatly moved by the fear of ceremonial pollution. Religious scruples may live in a dead conscience. So these Jews asked Pilate that the legs of the three crucified be broken. And here's some background on this brutal practice. In order for those crucified to continue breeding, they must not let gravity drag them down. They have to pull up straining their arm and leg muscles, placing excruciating pressure on their nail-pierced wrists and feet. Over time, they'd be fatigued. They no longer get enough oxygen in their lungs. But the will to live is strong. The broken legs would make sure they can't pull up to continue breathing, and it would, of course, accelerate the arrival of death. Pilate agrees to the plan. The soldiers quickly and ruthlessly carry out the order with the two robbers. But when they come to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. Just to be sure, one of them pierces his side with the spear, bringing forth a mixture of blood and water. So what's that about? Uh, Now, John's no doctor. Um, John, apostle. Neither is the soldier. So closer to our time, a cardiothoracic surgeon explains, quote, It is well known that blood in these circumstances in a still dead body starts to separate out the sediment, the heavier red cells sinking to the bottom, leaving much lighter straw-colored fluid, the plasma above. When a hole is made by the spear, the red cells, which John describes as blood, gushes out first, followed by the plasma, which John saw as water, This not only confirms Christ's death medically, it also confirms prophetically his identity as our Passover lamb and the future savior of Jerusalem, according to Zechariah. Jesus gave up his life to fulfill the Father's will. But the body was still hanging on the cross. Matthew and Mark report that evening had arrived. There was barely enough sunlight remaining It's getting late, and so far, no man has stepped up 
to give Jesus a proper burial. So that leads us to today's text. And these are the final verses of Luke chapter 23. A short passage of seven verses. So let's see, let's see what happens next. So Luke 23, 50 to 56. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the woman who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. The Lord willing, on Sunday, we'll talk more about the women. Tonight, I would like for us to focus on Joseph of Arimathea. We'll talk about his story, his purpose, and his example. First, here's the story of Joseph. I just want to say there was a poor Joseph on the day of Christ's birth. There's a rich Joseph on the day of Christ's death. This one's from a city named Arimathea, a city of the Jews, Luke says. Some believe it's Ramathim Zophim, the birthplace of prophet Samuel. Perhaps it's too obscure by this time. But the place name was useful attached to Joseph, a common name, to distinguish him from others in the early church with the same name. But Joseph of Arimathea is unique in various other ways. We learned that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and not just any member, but a prominent member. His voice carried weight. His opinion mattered. But this is the same council that condemned Jesus overnight and in the morning. What was Joseph doing? Was he even there? We have no record of him speaking against the injustice. We do know he he had not consented to their wicked decision. Indeed. We also gather from the Gospels that he is saved. Is described as just. That same word was used by the centurion just hours ago in Luke 23, 47 to describe the innocence of Jesus. Of course, as John MacArthur says, Jesus is righteous by nature. Joseph was righteous by grace. Joseph's just because he's justified by faith in Christ. He's good only because he's a disciple of Jesus. He's born again by the Spirit, waiting for the kingdom of God. So much potential in Joseph. But we do find in John 19.38, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. That phrase, for fear of the Jews, is interesting. We read how this fear kept many silent in the Jewish community. It's the fear of being ostracized and 
marginalized. If anyone confessed that Jesus was Christ, he'd be put out of the synagogue. It's the same fear that kept the disciples in hiding behind closed doors Sunday night. And this fear had a grip on Joseph for some time now. But it's time for a change. No more hiding. No more silent Christianity. Mark tells us Joseph took courage when he approached Pilate about the body of Jesus. Finally, he's free of that snare, that fear of man. His colleagues refused to enter the praetorium lest they be defiled and not eat the Passover. But Joseph chose Christ, the better, the true Passover. This convert's no longer covert. It's a better late than never faith, but it's faith nonetheless. And it still had an effect. In fact, Joseph's faith inspired Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, but now appears to be in the light, born again. You say there was a graveyard shift in their faith. After obtaining Pilate's approval, the two go and prepare the corpse for burial. Joseph took the lead and brought down the body. He wrapped it in strips of linen with an abundance of spices of myrrh and aloe. They were careful to follow the custom of Jews, but time was running out. Providentially, Joseph's very own tomb was nearby in a garden. It was a new tomb hewn out of a rock in which no one had yet been laid. They rolled a large stone against the door while Mary, Magdalene, and another Mary, the mother of Joseph, watched. They planned to come back after the Sabbath to follow up on the work of these two men. So that's Joseph's story. Now let's talk about Joseph's purpose. We see how the sovereign Lord used his initiative and his donation to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 8-9. It says there, he was taken from prison, talk about Christ, and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Simply put, God used Joseph for this purpose to honor Christ in his burial. The cross of Jesus will communicate that he's cursed. The tomb of Jesus will communicate that he's blessed. These two truths converge, come together in the good news, the gospel. Let's remind ourselves of the salvation message. The curse of the law rightly belongs to us. Jesus carried our sins to the cross, We're guilty of rebellion, wickedness, blasphemy, deception, lust, and hate. All that we contribute to the story of redemption is failure, weakness, and cowardice. We're not the heroes. We're the ones in need of God's rescue. That's why Jesus, God's son, took our place, paying 
the eternal penalty for our sins. He lived a perfect life. He died a perfect death. So it's only appropriate that he gets a proper burial. He rose again from the dead, proved himself to be alive. He'll return someday to judge all mankind. Until then, it's on all of us to repent, turn from sin, turn to Jesus and trust in him. Say by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So now that we discussed the story of Joseph and his purpose as it relates to the gospel, finally, let's think about the example of Joseph. And we're like him in many ways. Relative to many in the world today, most of us enjoy the privilege of material blessings. We may even hold respected positions in society. On top of that, we're professing Christians and we're headed for heaven. But at times, we compromise. We desire the best of both worlds, this one and the next. But that's not sustainable. Today is a good day as any to make our faith public. As Joseph and Nicodemus did 2,000 years ago on Good Friday, we must also step out in faith, shed our fear of man, Fear God above all. No more secret, silent Christianity. Tell the world that we are Christians. If you agree with me that that's what we must do, and if you also agree with me that at times we failed at this, please join me in a prayer of confession and repentance now. Let's pray.